0: Chapter 5 of The Rough Road by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 5. The first thing that brought the seriousness of the war home to Doggy was a letter from John Fox. John Fox, a major in a territorial regiment, was mobilised. He regretted that he could not give his personal attention to the proposed alterations at Denby Hall. Should the plans be proceeded with in his absence from the office, or would Mr. Trevor care to wait till the end of the war, which, from the nature of things, could not last very long? Doggy trotted off to Peggy. She was greatly annoyed. "'What awful rot!' she cried. "'Fox, a major of artillery! I just as soon trust you with a gun. Why doesn't he stick to his architecture?' "'He'd be shot or something if he refused to go,' said Doggy. "'But why can't we turn it over to Sir Owen Julius?' "'That old archaeological fossil!' Peggy, womanlike, forgot that they'd approached him in the first place. He'd never begin to understand what we want. Fox hinted as much. Now Fox is modern and up-to-date and sympathetic. If I can't have Fox, I won't have Sir Owen. Why, he's older than Dad. He's decrepit. Can't we get another architect? Uh, Do you think, dear, said Doggy, that in the circumstances it would be a nice thing to do? She flashed a glance at him she had woven no young girl's romantic illusions around marmaduke should necessity have arisen she could have furnished you with a merciless analysis of his character but in that analysis she would have frankly included a very fine sense of honour if he said a thing wasn't quite nice well it wasn't quite nice i suppose it wouldn't she admitted we shall have to wait but it's a rotten nuisance all the same hundreds of thousands of not very intelligent but at the same time by no means unpatriotic people, like Peggy, at the beginning of the war thought trivial disappointments rotten nuisances. We had all waxed too fat during the opening years of the twentieth century, and, not having a spiritual ideal in God's universe, we were in danger of perishing from fatty degeneration of the soul. As it was, it took a year or more of war to cure us. It took Peggy quite a month to appreciate the meaning of the mobilisation of Major Fox, R.F.A. A brigade of territorial artillery flowed over Dogebury, and the sacred and sleepy meadows became a mass of guns and horse-lines and men in khaki and waggons and dingy canvas tents, and the old quiet streets were thick with unaccustomed soldiery. The dean called on the colonel and officers, and soon the house was full of eager young men holding the king's commission. Doggy admired their patriotism, but disliked their wholehearted embodiment of the military spirit. They seemed to have no ideas beyond their new trade. The way they clanked about in their great boots and spurs got on his nerves. He dreaded also lest Peggy should be affected by the meretricious attraction of a uniform. There were fine, hefty fellows among the visitors at the deanery, on whom Peggy looked with natural admiration. Doggy bitterly confided to Goliath that it was, the glamour of Brown. It never entered his head during those early days that all the brawn of all the manhood of the nation would be needed. We had our well-organised army and navy, composed of peculiarly constituted men whose duty it was to fight, just as we had our well-organised national church, also composed of peculiarly constituted men whose duty it was to preach. He regarded himself as remote from one as from the other. Oliver, who had made a sort of peace with Doggy, and remained at the deanery, very quickly grew restless. One day, walking with Peggy and Marmaduke in the garden, he said, "'I wish I could get hold of that confounded fellow Chipmunk!' Partly through deference to the good dean's delicately hinted distaste for that upsetter of decorous households, and partly to allow his follower to attend to his own domestic affairs, he had left Chipmunk in London. Fifteen years ago Chipmunk had parted from a wife somewhere in the neighbourhood of the East India docks. Both, being illiterate, neither had since communicated with the other. As he had left her earning good money in a factory, his fifteen years' separation had been relieved from anxiety as to her material welfare. A prudent, although a beer-loving man, he had amassed considerable savings, and it was the due motive of sharing these with his wife, and of protecting his patron from the ever-lurking perils of London, that had brought him across the seas. When Oliver had set him free in town, he was going in quest of his wife. But as he had forgotten the name of the street near the East India docks where his wife lived, and the name of the factory in which she worked, the successful issue of the quest, in Oliver's opinion, seemed problematical. The simple chipmunk, bunk however, was quite sanguine. He would run into her all right. As soon as he had found her he would let the captain know. Up to the present, he had not communicated with the captain. He could give the captain no definite address, so the captain could not communicate with him. Chipmunk had disappeared into the unknown. "'Isn't he quite capable of taking care of himself?' asked Peggy. "'I'm not so sure,' replied Oliver. "'Besides, he's hanging me up. I'm kind of responsible for him, and I've got sixty pounds of his money.' "'It's all I could do to persuade him not to stow the lot in his pocket, "'so as to divide it with Mrs. Chipmunk as soon as he saw her. "'I must find out what has become of the beggar before I move.' "'I suppose,' said Doggy, "'you're anxious now to get back to the South Seas?' Oliver stared at him. "'No, Sonny, not till the war's over.' "'Why, you wouldn't be in any great danger out there, would you?' Oliver laughed. "'You're the funniest duck that ever was, Doggy. "'I'll never get to the end of you.' And he strolled away. Well, "'What does he mean?' asked the bewildered Doggy. "'I think,' replied Peggy, smiling, "'that he means he's going to fight.' "'Oh!' said Doggy. Then after a pause he added, "'He's just the sort of chap for a soldier, isn't he?' The next day Oliver's anxiety as to Chipmunk was relieved by the appearance of the man himself, incredibly dirty and dusty and thirsty. Having found no trace of his wife, and having been robbed of the money he carried about him, he had tramped to Dirtlebury, where he reported himself to his master as if nothing out of the way had happened. "'You silly blighter!' said Oliver. "'Suppose I'd let you go with your other sixty pounds. You'd have been pretty well in the soup, wouldn't you?' "'Yes, cuppin,' said Chipmunk. "'And you're not going on any blithering idiot wild goose-chases after wives and such-like truck again, are you?' "'No, cuppin,' said Chipmunk. This was in the stable-yard, after Chipmunk had shaken some of the dust out of his hair and clothes, and had eaten and drunk voraciously. He was now sitting on an upturned bucket, and smoking his clay pipe with an air of solid content. Oliver, lean and supple, his hands in his pockets, looked humorously down upon him. "'And you've got to stick to me for the future like a rosy leech. "'Yes, cuppin'. "'You're going to ride a horse?' "'A what?' roared Chipmunk. A thing on four legs that kicks like hell. Whatever for, I ain't never ridden no horses. You're going to learn, you are military-looking, worm-eaten scab. You've got to be a ruddy soldier. Good blimey, said Chipmunk. That's the first I heard of it. Oh, soldier. You're not kidding, are you, cuppin'? Certainly not. Go blimey, who would have thought of it? Then he spat lustily and sucked at his pipe. You've nothing to say against it, have you? Oh, no, cuppin'. "'All right. And look here, when we're in the army, you must chuck, calling me Cap'n.' "'What shall I have to call you? General?' Chipmunk asked simply. "'Mate, Bill, Joe, any old name.' "'Christ!' said Chipmunk. "'Do you know why we're going to enlist?' Ooh, can't say as how I does, Cap'n.' "'You chuckle-headed swab! Don't you know we're at war?' Well, "'I did hear some talk about it in a pub one night,' Chipmunk admitted. "'Who are we fighting, Dutchman or Dagoes?' "'Dutchman.' Chipmunk spat on his horny hands, rubbed them together, and smiled. As each individual hair on his face seemed to enter into the smile, the result was sinister. "'Do you remember that Dutchman at some Captain?' Oliver smiled back. He remembered the hulking, truculent German merchant whom Chipmunk, having half-strangled, threw into the sea. He also remembered the amount of accomplished lying he had to practice in order to save Chipmunk from the clutches of the law and get away with the schooner. We leave here tomorrow," morrow said Oliver. In the meanwhile you'll have to shave your ugly face. For the first time Chipmunk was really staggered. He gaped at Oliver's retiring figure. Even his limited and time-worn vocabulary failed him. The desperate meaning of the war had flashed suddenly on millions of men in millions of different ways. This is the way in which it flashed on Chipmunk. He sat on his bucket, pondering over the awfulness of it, "'and sucking his pipe long after it had been smoked out. "'The dean's car drove into the yard, "'and the chauffeur, stripping off his coat, "'prepared to clean it down. "'Say, Governor,' said Chipmunk hoarsely, 'what "'what do you think of this here wall?' "Same as most People,' replied the chauffeur tersely. "'He showed in the general disapproval of Chipmunk. "'But see here, the company tells me I must shave my face "'and be an oss soldier. "'I never shaved my face in my life, "'and I don't know how to do it. "'just as I did not know how to ride a horse. "'I'm a sailor-man, I am, "'and sailor-men don't shave their faces and ride osses. "'That's why I ask you what you thought of this ere war.' "'The chauffeur struggled into his jeans "'and adjusted them before replying. "'If you are a sailor, the place for you is the navy,' "'he remarked in a superior manner. "'As for the cavalry, the captain, as you call him, "'ought to have more sense.' "'Chipmunk rose and swung his long arms threateningly. "'Look here, young feller. "'Do you want to have your blinking head knocked off? "'Where the captain goes, I goes, and don't you make any mistake about it.' "'I didn't say anything,' the chauffeur expostulated. "'Then don't say it. See? Keep your blinking head shut and mind your own business.' And scowling fiercely and thrusting his empty pipe into his trousers-pocket, Chipmunk rolled away. A few hours later Oliver, entering his room to dress for dinner, found him standing in the light of the window laboriously fitting studs into a shirt. The devoted fellow, having gone to report to his master, had found Burford engaged in his accustomed task of laying out his master's evening clothes. Oliver, during his stay in London, had provided himself with these necessaries. A jealous snarl had sent Burford flying. So intent was he on his work that he did not hear Oliver enter. Oliver stood and watched him. Chipmunk was swearing wholesomely under his breath. Oliver saw him take up the tail of the shirt, spit on it, and begin to rub something. Caroist, said Chipmunk. "'What in the thundering blazes are you doing there?' cried Oliver. Chipmunk turned. "'Oh, my God!' said Oliver. Then he sank on a chair and laughed and laughed. And the more he looked at Chipmunk, the more he laughed. And Chipmunk stood stolid, holding the shirt of the awful wet thumb-marked front. But it was not of the shirt that Oliver laughed. "'Good God!' he cried. "'Were you born like that?' For Chipmunk having gone to the barber's, was clean-shaven, and revealed himself as one of the most comically ugly of the sons of men. "'Oh, never mind,' said Oliver, after a while. "'You've made the sacrifice for your country. "'And what if I get the face-ache?' "'I get something that looked like a face before I talk of it,' grinned Oliver. "'At the family dinner-table, Doggy being present, he announced his intentions. "'It was the duty of every able-bodied man to fight for the Empire.' Had not half a million just been called for? We should want a jolly sight more than that before we got through with it. Anyway, he was off to-morrow. Tomorrow? echoed the dean. Burford, who was handing him potatoes, arched his eyebrows in alarm. He was fond of Oliver. With Chipmunk? Burford uttered an unheard sigh of relief. We're going to enlist in King Edward's horse. They're our kind. Overseas men. Lots of them what you dear good people would call bad eggs. "'There you made the mistake. Perhaps they may be fresh enough raw for a dainty palate, but for cooking—good hard cooking—by gosh, nothing can touch them!' "'You talk of enlisting, dear,' said Mrs. Conover. "'Does that mean as a private soldier?' "'Yes, a trooper. Why not? If you are a gentleman, dear, gentlemen in the army are officers.' "'Not now, my dear Sophia,' said the doctor. "'Gentlemen are crowding into the ranks. They are setting a noble example.' They argued it out in their gentle, old-fashioned way. The dean quoted examples of sons of families who had served as privates in the South African war. "'And that to this,' said he, "'is but an eddy to a maelstrom.' "'Come and join us, James Marmaduke,' said Oliver, across the table. "'Chipmunk and me. Three swarm brothers to France.' Doggy smiled easily. "'I'm afraid I can't undertake to swear a fraternal affection for chipmunk,' "'He and I wouldn't have neither habits nor ideals in common.' "'Oliver turned to Peggy. "'I wish,' said he, with rare restraint, "'he wouldn't talk like a book on deportment.' Marmaduke talks the language of civilization. laughed Peggy. "'He's not a savage like you.' "'Don't you jolly well wish he was?' said Oliver. "'Peggy flushed. "'No, I don't,' she declared. "'The dean, being called away on business immediately after dinner, the young men were left alone in the dining-room where the ladies had departed. Oliver poured himself out a glass of port and filled his pipe, an inelegant proceeding of which Doggy disapproved. A pipe alone was barbaric. A pipe with old port was criminal. He held his peace, however. "'James Marmaduke,' said Oliver after a while, "'what are you going to do?' Much as Marmaduke disliked the name of Doggy, he winced under the irony of the new appellation. "'I don't see that I'm called upon to do anything,' he replied. "'Oliver smoked and sipped his port. "'I don't want to hurt your feelings any more,' said he gravely. "'Sometimes I'd like to scrag you. "'I suppose because you're so different from me. "'It was so when we were children together. "'Now I've grown very fond of Peggy. "'Put on the right track, she might turn into a very fine woman.' "'I don't think we need to discuss Peggy, Oliver,' said Marmaduke. I do. She's sticking to you very loyally. Oliver was a bit of an idealist. The time may come when she'll be up the devil's own tree. She'll develop a patriotic conscience. If she sticks to you while you do nothing, she'll be miserable. If she chucks you, as she probably will, she'll be no happier. It's all up to you, James Doggy, Marmaduke, old son. You'll have to gut up your loins and take sword and buckler and march away like the rest. I don't want Peggy to be unhappy. I want her to marry a man. "'That's why I proposed to take you out with me to Hugh and try to make you one. "'But that's over. Now here's the real chance. "'Better take it sooner than later. You'll have to be a soldier, Doggy.' "'His pipe not drawing, he was preparing to dig it with the point of a dessert knife, "'when Doggy interposed hurriedly. "'For goodness sake, don't do that! It makes cold shivers run down my back!' "'Oliver looked at him oddly, put the extinct pipe in his dinner-jacket pocket, and rose.' A flaw in the dainty and divine ordering of things makes you shiver now, old doggie. What will you do when you see a fellow digging out another fellow's intestines with the point of a bayonet? A bigger flaw there, somehow. Don't talk like that. You make me sick, said doggy. End of chapter 5